You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. All right, church. So as you probably know, we are uh, doing this series called Truth Over Trend. A very popular uh, series, at least in our church. We kind of love this. Uh, We've been loving kind of going through this. So truth over trend. And we've looked at a few trends. Um, We've looked at uh, critical social justice. We've looked at critical race theory last weekend. And today we're going to look at a very, very fun subject. Another trend. It's a big trend. It's been happening uh, for thousands of years. Uh, And today I'm going to talk from this fun uh, trend that is called uh, sexual and gender foolishness. Yay. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, maybe half of you will just stand up and leave, but no, no, you won't do that because we're still a small church and I'll see you and I'll feel awkward. <laughs> don't. don't. <laughs> um, yeah, so let me just, actually, let's stand and I'll, I'll uh, we're, we're actually going to be in Romans 1 for most of this and uh, I want to read verses 18 to 32. Just a quick disclaimer as you stand, uh, yeah, as you probably, uh, uh, I don't know, realize, because I've just told you the title, it is going to be heavy, heavy in words. We're not going to be here the whole day, I guarantee you. We are going to leave and, and have some lunch. And then it's going to be heavy in just content, just it's heavy. There's a heaviness behind this, right? So be praying for me, be praying for all of us. I hope that my tone is pastoral and lovely because it is. I do this because I think the church needs it and we really need it in our day and age. Um, Having said that, yeah, Romans 1 verses 18 to 32. Truth over trend. All right, let's read. The the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. Amen. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts or passions in a different translation. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. 
They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And the last verse. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Amen. Let me just pray for us this morning. Father, you are good. And this is your word. And all scripture is, is uh, breathed by you for uh, teaching, for, uh, for rebuking, for correction, for training in righteousness, Lord God. And you say that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord Jesus, we don't want to shy away from texts like these. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would move me out of the way and that you would speak to us here today. Would you, Lord God, save us and heal us? And out of this message, Lord God, I pray that we would see your goodness and your grace, Lord God, and how you died on a cross for us to save us from the wrath of God. Please help us respond in a God-honoring way to your word. And we thank you so much for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we may be going just a few minutes over. I hope that's okay with you. I do want to take my time and be clear about what I'm going to say because it's going to be very, very interesting to say the least. I have the great honor today of preaching of, you know, on what is the most despised, hated, opposed, and attacked attack text in the entire Bible. Romans 1. You probably knew this, um, but for a few seconds, right as my intro, uh, in Romans chapter 12, Apostle Paul gives us a principle that I want us to exercise today. Uh, not only for today, but for the rest of our lives. I'm sure this will be a healthy thing to do. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. That's what, it's, that's what he says. What he's talking about there is literally a mold. A mold. And I've been watching Coco Melon. I don't know if you guys know this. This is a beautiful series out there on Netflix. And it's uh, cartoons for kids. Come on. Been watching it with my daughter, Taya. I, I have my favorite episodes. She's got her favorites. Anyway, so I, we love this, this one episode where the kids are making popsicles. From these molds, it just is pretty much is just to, to, to have every popsicle come out the same. That's kind of the idea of a mold. But that's what literally um, Apostle Paul is saying, that word pattern, a mold. You go into school today and there's a, an educational system that tries to mold you into a certain political, sexual orientation, ideology, and behavior, right? So just like we're making popsicles in a coal, ultimately it's to get everything to come out looking exactly the same. I'm telling you uh, that for those of us who will stand up against the cultural tide, there will be a great price to pay. Okay? And the price of following Jesus is getting increasingly more expensive. All right? And it's going to take a lot of work from you and, and I and, and not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Not to think how everyone else thinks. Not to uh, love what everyone else loves. Not to, uh, not to post what everyone else posts, right? 
not to do what everyone else does. Instead, Apostle Paul finishes the verse and he says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Man, he's, what he's saying there is like, is God's word your guide for life? Are you truly uh, treating it as life and as God's word? If that's the case, and I hope that's the case for all of us here. I hope that's the case for Summit Church. Then we will know what God's will is. And it's good and it's pleasing and perfect. Even we're, we want to be about this because one of our values at Summit is Scripture, our highest authority. So as we get into it today, my, my text is on sex, gender, and sexuality. The three things that you did not want to talk about, that you don't want, never want to talk about at church, right? Um, but that's okay. We got to tackle this. As long, I mean, I don't want to do this. Uh, a part of me doesn't want to do this. Part of me wants to do this. Um, so we're just going to do it. Let me set the context a little bit here, because for those of you who are younger, you assume that the world that you were born into is normative. This has been the world for forever, but it, it, it's not. That's not the case. You need to know that there was a, a mass social experiment, a sociological experiment that has been underway for quite some time now. It's been cataclysmic and it's only, um, well, I would say from one perspective, it's a short period of time. That this has been underway, right? So let me just give you some, some numbers. In 1973, right at the tail end of the sexual revolution, Roe versus Wade was legalized and it legalized abortion, as we all know. Roe versus Wade, Roe versus Wade was disastrous in how we view gender, sexuality, and sex. In addition to that, up until 1974, there was the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that was published by the American Psychiatric Association. It was considered the Bible of Mental Health Disorders, right? So up until 1974, check this out, homosexuality was considered and listed clinically as a mental disorder. Hmm. So think of this. I was born a few years after abortion was legal. And I was born a few years after homosexuality was considered a mental disorder. What's my point? Just look at the great speed of change within our culture. I'm still young. Okay. So look at the great speed. Ultimately, what happened then in, in 2015, we'll skip a few years. We had a lot of arguments over gender, over marriage, sexuality, right? And ultimately then in 2015, the Supreme Court made same-sex marriage the law of the land for all 50 states. I want to start by putting us all on the same team. And that's that. We need to start from here. We're all sinners who are in desperate need of a Savior. Amen? Amen. What I don't want to do is have this sermon be on, you know, the good people versus the bad people. No, 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 no. Because human history is the bad people and all of us are bad versus Jesus Christ versus God. There's only one person on the other side of the line and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the savior of the world. We're on the sinner side, just so everyone is clear. We're all on the same team. Let's get a little bit more specific. I was going to make a list with all the things that are that are forbidden in the Bible when it comes to matters of sexuality. 
but you are welcome. I'm not going to do that. Uh, because I think that for most of us, we kind of know what the Bible says, or at least the big categories, right? Well, I'm sure that we've all heard of fornication, right? And the Bible, the Bible talks against adultery and rape and incest and homosexuality and prostitution and so on. What I want to mention, though, is a category called sexual immorality that we find in the Bible. And the Greek word in the New Testament for this category is used repeatedly in the Bible, and it's the word in Greek called porneia. You may have heard of this. This is, if it sounds familiar, that's because we get the word pornographic or, or uh, from, from this word. It's an open category of sexual sin that can include a number of other sexual sins. This would include, again, like I said, pornography and also your thought life. Huh? Jesus said that we don't just commit adultery with our hands, but we also commit adultery with our hearts. Ooh. Okay, so if we have a list, or maybe I just went through a few, a few of the things on the list, and if you're reading it, you know, or listening to it, and you're like, oh, I didn't do that. I'm good there. I'm good there. I'm good there. Let's just say we've all done the last one. Adultery of the heart. Can we be honest in church this morning? This is where Job 31.1 says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon people lustfully. Mm. Looking with your eyes lustfully, this is in the same category, pornea, right? And it may not necessarily even, you know, uh, mean what you've done with your hands or, or but it's what you do with your eyes or, or with your heart. And I think we understand that. A simple point in sharing or talking about a list or at least naming some of the things on the list is this. Before we get into the specifics of Romans 1, I'm just pointing out the fact that we're all guilty in different ways. And I really want us to get that. And what I want us to be reminded again is that we all need a Savior. I can't say that enough. And that we're all sinners. And we, and we can become forgiven sinners if for some reason some of us here are not forgiven sinners, just sinners, right? And we can become forgiven sinners that we can be, and we can be completely transformed and changed by God's grace. Amen. Amen. And as we look at particular sexual acts and, 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 and misconduct or disobedience or rebellion, I want us not to use the Bible first and foremost as binoculars, looking at other people. Hey, look at them. Look at what they're doing wrong. No, no, no. Let's use it as a mirror. And let's look inside. Let's, let's judge ourselves before we judge others. Let's examine ourselves before we examine others. By the way, I hope again that, and I'll, I'll say this again, and pray that my tone will be pastoral and loving as I speak this truth, because it is, it is. That being said, let's jump into Romans 1.18. We're going to take section by section. This is where Apostle Paul, right from the get-go, verse 18, Paul starts very calmly and smoothly with, with, the wrath of God. <laughs> yeah, not very smoothly, is it? Now, let me just say this. Some people will get very angry. I can't believe that God has wrath. Like, dude, God is love. What are you talking about? Mm, do you have wrath? Do you? Why not God? <laughs> Why not God? I mean, you know, Democrats and Republicans have a lot of wrath right now. Right? 
Our world is filled with a lot of wrath. Wrath is what happens when people feel something is off and wrong and there's injustice. And, right? and if we do not allow God to have wrath, quote unquote, allow God. What right do we have to have wrath? Right? Now let me just read again this cluster of verses where it talks about the wrath of God. 18 to 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. Keep that in mind. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now let's stop for a little bit. Let me just say this. We live in a world of victims where, where everybody has an excuse, right? Even we do that. And we just assume that if we have an excuse, then we're not morally responsible. <laughs> That's not the case. First, in these three verses that I just read to you, Apostle Paul tells us about something that's called, and I'm going to get into some technical words, not too much, something that's called general revelation, right? And this, and this kind of revelation exists in two forms, as opposed to special revelation, which I'm not going to get into, which is the Bible, Jesus Christ, miracles. I'm not going to get into that. But the difference between revelation and speculation, for instance, is this. Speculation is us guessing who God is. And we do a lot of this in our world. Guessing who God is and what God is like. Revelation is God revealing to us who He is and what He's like. That's revelation, general revelation. General revelation is simply when you look at the world that God has made and it tells you some things about the character of God. Simply just looking in nature. Alright? That God is powerful. That God is orderly. That God is beautiful. That God is meticulously in the details. That God cares a lot about life and flourishing. You can tell that just from looking at His creation. Okay? You learn a lot about God from, from, from the world that He has made. This is why some people, even when they go camping or, you know, they love nature and they'll say, man, I'm really close. I feel close to God right now, right? It's because it's as close as they get to God, right? In addition, Romans 2, and I'm not going to get into that just briefly. Romans 2 tells us about a, an internal witness of general revelation called the conscience. And everyone has, has one. Every single person on planet earth has a conscience. That's how God created us. And he says that God has placed a conscience within us, meaning we are moral beings. We, and we know what, that certain things are right and that certain things are wrong. We know that naturally. So the problem that we tend to have in our society is not mental. But it is moral. It, it's not that we don't know right and wrong. It is that we don't like right and wrong. And this is where we get very, very hypocritical. We will appeal to the truth when it benefits us. We will deny the truth, you know, when it benefits us. And if I feel that you are wrong, I will call you to a moral standard. But if I do something wrong, I appeal to no standard because that's what sinners do. That's what broken people do. That's what criminals do. 
Okay. Another thing that is crucial in our discussion today, something that Paul talks about in these three verses, is this demonic endeavor to suppress the truth. This is huge when we talk about what we're talking about today. To suppress the truth, right? And, and in Greek, if you look at it in Greek, it means to prevent someone from exercising power. Very interesting, isn't it? That's what it means. To prevent someone from exercising power. By the way, did you know that um, the critical theory, one of the theories that we're kind of going through in a sense, and we're kind of, we're looking at the Bible and to see if it's actually biblical or if it's just a trend. The critical theory has taken over all the academic disciplines in the West. We kind of know this. And it basically says that privileged groups, and we've looked at this a few weeks ago, and, and, and Raz did last weekend, that privileged groups have created institutions to oppress less privileged groups, right? And bringing justice, right, is to rob them of power, to dismantle those institutions, right? And to redistribute the wealth and the power to those who are oppressed, right? And it makes sense, like, wow, that's pretty good at a first glance. But they get to define who the oppressed are. Right? They'll include you know, categories as the LGBTQ community. And they define what oppression is as well. Which is, once you get into it, it is a very, very different world than maybe you've thought of at a first glance. At first, let me give you an example. It was Nazi Germany and they decided that the Jews were the oppressors. Right? The Jewish people. So critical theory does not lead to human life and flourishing. But what it does, it suppresses the truth. Right? It wants to take money, power from those who have it, and it wants to redistribute it to others so that they can suppress the truth as well. That's what human beings do. That's what we do with the truth, generally speaking. This is what society does with the truth. We grab it by the throat and we drown it. Right? That's a good, I think, a word picture. That's suppression. It's robbing of it its power and seeking to destroy it so that you can rule over it. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. It's not that God has not spoken. It's that we could care less that he did. And as a society, it's like we're not interested, God. We're not obedient. We could care less what you said. And the truth is this, and some people will struggle with this, that ultimately, truth is what or that which corresponds to reality, right? That's truth. I mean, philosophically speaking, there's something called the correspondence theory of truth. And truth is that which corresponds with reality, right? Those who deny truth, they don't deal with reality. So if I'm here standing in front of you and telling you, hey, I'm wearing a, a pair of gray pants as opposed to, you know, red shorts, well, why is that the truth, Ovi? Well, because it corresponds with reality. Look at me. I'm wearing pants and they're gray, right? So people who do not deal with reality, they deny the truth. So even today, people will say stuff like, well, we don't need police officers. You're denying the truth and you're not dealing with reality, right? And I think some of us, you know, that have said that, we're like, yeah, I, I think you're right, <laughs> You're not dealing with reality if I told you that I am a young Korean woman. And your response would be, Ovi, that's your truth and we support you with that. 
I'm, I'm not. I'm a man. I, I was born in Romania. If anything, I'm a Romanian, American, Canadian, whatever. But I'm not Korean. I'm not related to Nick Lee from Restore. I am not. I'm not his sister, right? No, I am. This is what you see, right? What if I would told you, but that's exactly how I feel. How dare you? But it doesn't change the reality, does it? Right? And so what we do, we exchange the truth, exactly what Paul is saying. We exchange the truth for the lie and we don't deal with reality. We call this America now. Okay? This is how suppression happens. And we know this by hashtags, by movements, by protests, by social media intimidation, by media biases, by evil politicians, etc., etc., etc. Exchanging the truth for the lie is ultimately demonic because John says in, in chapter 8, uh, Jesus says in John 8, rather, that the lie is birthed by a being who is the father of all lies. And what's his name? The devil, Satan. So when we exchange the truth for God for a lie, of God for a lie, we are welcoming Satan to be the father of our destiny. And then we wonder why it feels like hell on earth. That's where we live. Now, and that being said, what Paul is talking about is the human condition, kind of a summary so far, human condition that culminates with the response of God and wrath. I gave you chances. You know the truth. You've rejected me and suppressed the truth. The only solution is my wrath. People usually have this reaction when you talk about God's wrath. No, how dare you say that God has wrath? God is love and that's it. No. (laughs) The Bible speaks of God with a number, a constellation of images. He does speak of God's love. Is God love? Does, Does the Bible speak about God's love, church? Amen. How amazing is that? Thank you, Jesus, that you are love. But the number one attribute of God that is mentioned more than any other in the Bible is the holiness of God. We don't really talk about that, do we? Why would we? Right? Right? 600 times in the Bible, we, we, uh, it's mentioned about the holiness of God. But also, the Bible uses a vast number of words to speak of the wrath of God. More than 200 occasions. It's a major theme, not a minor theme. So what am I saying by this? Love and wrath go together, church. They have to. Because wrath and love are correlated. They are interconnected. Let me just say this. If you're going to stand for something, if you're going to love something, you need to be against something else. That's just at what love means. You need to be against that which is going to destroy who or what you love. You have to. You have to. We see this at the cross of Jesus Christ. We see the love of God and the wrath of God at the same time. Beautiful picture. The love of God is Jesus Christ dying in our place for our sins. And then you see the wrath of God poured out on Jesus because he took our sins upon himself. God hates sin. God loathes sin because it wrecks and it ruins us. And because he loves us, he pours out his wrath. Does that make sense? Sin tears a path of destruction in our life. So God's like, no, I love you too much. I will show you my wrath. Or I will show you my wrath to that which is destroying his creation. So love 
cannot, you cannot have love without wrath. The wrath, you just can't. God's wrath is revealed, and Paul says three times in this section, 18 to 32, these verses, three times, God handed them over, God handed them over, God handed them over. And part of God's wrath is letting you do whatever you want. I, I love this. God's like, I'm not going to say anything. And then most of us are like, ooh, God must not exist because he's not saying anything. I, I'm okay to whatever, do whatever I'm doing because he's not saying anything. He must not have a problem with my behavior. He, he, he's not involving himself in my life. He, I haven't experienced any wrath yet. So he must be fine with what I'm doing. If God has not gotten in your way of self-destructing yourself, you are experiencing the passive wrath of God. Just so we're clear, let's, hey, I'm just, I'm just the messenger here. <laughs> this is what the Bible says. When God lets you be on your own, that's a very, very, very dangerous place to live in. Now, that leads to his active wrath that he speaks of in Romans 2.5. We're not going to get into that, but let me just read this verse briefly. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What I'm telling you is this. If you have any sin in your life, particularly sexual sin, because that's what we're talking about today, right? And you've not given it to the Lord. You, you said, man, I'm not going to confess it. I'm not going to repent of it if that's you. First of all, you need to be reminded of this. Know that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins and he loves you experiencing the wrath of God so you could receive the love of God. You need to know that, okay? So if any of us have not given our sin to the Lord, if we haven't repented, if we haven't, you know, confessed it to Him, and somehow we're thinking He hasn't really said anything about it, we're not getting away with anything. We're not. We're storing up wrath for the day of wrath and judgment. And that's not a good thing. Hebrews 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Someone said it like this. Think of it as a dam that is holding back a massive river. And then one day the dam comes down and the flood ensues. That's passive wrath holding, back until, holding it back until active wrath is released. Does that make sense? Let's move on to the next few verses. Verses 21 to 25. I'll, I'll read them again. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Apostle Paul changes gears a little bit here in these verses. And what he's talking about here is the two most important questions that you will ever need to answer in your life. Here we go. Who is God? And who am I? Two most important questions in your life, right? Who is God and who am I? And that, and, and, and what he says here is this. The majority of people have come to the conclusion that God is not worth honoring. 
That God is not worth thinking, that God is not worth, you know, obeying, that God is wrong and that God is repressive and and that God is restricting us from evolving into our next level of greatness. The only thing that's holding us back is religion, guilt, sin, shame, tradition. And if somehow we could get, we could simply unburden ourselves and get rid of all these things, you know, then we would grow into the fullness of our full potential. That's what basically the world says. This is the entire, you know, human potential movement, the the self-help movement, the self-esteem movement, right? We don't need self-help. We need God help. Our problem is not that we're not achieving our goodness. The problem is that we're achieving our badness and we need someone to save us really bad. And his name is Jesus. The second question is, who am I? So who are you, friend? Who are you? Like, who are we? What are we doing on this planet? Who are we? But we are all created in the image and likeness of God. That's the reality. We were created to worship God. You know, we can't help it. So we're all worshipers, right? The only difference is who or what do we worship? Worship is who or what is at the center of your life. Who or what do you devote yourself to and make sacrifices to? Good questions to ask yourself. The alcohol worships the bottle, right? The drug addict worships the needle. The sex addict worships the experience that they enjoy. Parents can worship kids and kids can worship parents. Husbands can worship wives and wives can worship beauty or lack of beauty, right? We all live for someone or something. And the point is this, that there are only two categories. Those who worship the creator, God. And they enjoy and steward creation or those who worship the created in place of the creator. That's it. This explains all religions. This explains all spiritualities, all ideologies. Sometimes we, we create systems and philosophical systems and moral systems and spiritual systems even. And even political systems. That's a created thing. But the thing that we tend to worship the most, according to Apostle Paul, drumroll, is sex. That's what he says. Out of all the things, this is the apex of our idolatry. Sex. Because of everything God made, he said it was good. But when God made the human body, he said it was very good. The apex of God's creation was the human body. The result is we tend to worship created things rather than the creator. Let me just say this. This is the Bible's language of idolatry. Which is taking a gift that God has given. Or a thing that God has made. And we tend to replace it with God. And as a result we take something that was good. And we make it bad. This is what happens with sex all the time. All the time. So the number one thing that we are most likely, according to what Paul is saying, first of all, we reject. Let's do a little bit of a summary. We reject the truth. We suppress the truth. We reject God. We suppress the truth. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we live in disobedience, which leads to the wrath of God. What ultimately happens is this. We worship the idol of sex. We worship sex. Just look at the world today. Look at us even sometimes, right? God made us, it says in Genesis 1, male and female. 
If we worship the created rather than the creator, we could come to the conclusion that God made a mistake with the way he made me. Therefore, I will remake myself. I will remake my gender. I will remake my identity. I will remake my sex and my sexuality because God made a mistake. And that's idolatry. That's idolatry. It's saying God made me the wrong way. Therefore, I'm going to remake myself the right way. Let me just read the next two verses. Verse 26 and 27. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. We need to know that everything God creates, Satan counterfeits. He does. We need to know this, that this, this language of what well, we've heard in these two verses of natural, right? Nature, natural, unnatural, right? This language. What it means is not the way we are now, but the way we were before sin entered the world. Please remember that when someone has an objection about that. This word natural, it doesn't mean how we are now. It means how we were created before sin entered the world. All right. In the late 80s and early 90s, some of the first studies started coming out of, on biology and gender and sexual identity, right? And one of the early researchers, a man named by LaVey out of UCLA, and he said, he said you know, we, we, we see these genetic indicators, but whoa, 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 hold on. Yeah, but this is our fallen genetic nature. Nature, that word is not how I am now. Nature is how we were before sin entered the world. The way we are now is not the way we were before sin entered the world. Let's just get that straight. Now, taking this language of nature and natural law, there was a, a philosopher, brilliant, and a theologian named Thomas Aquinas. He created something called natural law. And the very foundation of this natural law is that God is the lawgiver. And that certain laws that he created are for human life and flourishing. And as a result, God made male and female so that we could procreate, fill the earth and subdue it. It's human life and flourishing. Out of that comes a whole legal theory of natural law. Please look into it. But that's definitely not the law that we are following today in our society, is it? It's not. What Apostle Paul says in these two verses, he really starts to get very specific, right? Well, let me get into this. Sex until the recent era was biological. It was the way you were created, male and female. This would include your, your sex chromosomes, your internal reproductive organs, and your external genitalia. Okay? And really quickly, let me just bring you some statistics on ambiguous genitalia because that will come up. Some people will ask that and that's a very legitimate question. Okay, so I'll throw some numbers at you. 0.1% to 0.2% of children born have ambiguous genitalia. You know, they're born like, man, we don't know what it, this is, a, you know, a male or female, like we don't know. 0.1% to 0.2, right? In addition, 1% to 2% have less ambiguous genitalia. And just a side comment, this is post-sin genetics. Just keep that in mind. But as a general rule, your sex was previously determined by your birth, right? 
You come out, oh, it's a boy. You come out, oh, it's a girl, right? You, you look at them, and if you have kids, you, have the, you know the difference. You could look at them and say, that's a boy or that's a girl. The result of your biological sex was then your gender flowed from your sex. So guys are to be masculine and girls are to be feminine. This started in the hospital. The boy would be put in what color? Blue. The girl would be put in what color? Pink, right? And they'd be taken home. They'd be dressed in a way that was gender appropriate. And today, it is no longer how you are made. Things have changed. <laughs> it's not how, it's, it's how you feel. It's how you feel. And this is where people will say things like, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. And, and that's how I feel. And God made me this way. He made me wrong. God made a mistake. Now, this contradicts the basic teaching of the Bible, right? If we know anything about the Bible, and that's fine if we don't, the Bible will say stuff like, you know, it will, say, it will be very specific and it will say stuff to men and women, husbands and wives, right? The Bible assumes that they're men and women. Does it not say things to husbands? Does it not say things to wives? It assumes that there are husbands and wives, right? It says very offensively in 1 Corinthians 16, act like men. That's offensive today. That's what we like. I mean, I hope that's what we like as guys, you know, like, well, yeah, I should act like a man, right? The point is, the Bible assumes that there are men and they should act like it. And today, that's offensive. It will, not to God. Not to God. And, and see, the point is this. Either we will offend some people or we will offend God. The question is, who are you willing to offend? In God's word, sex is binary, male and female. And it's fixed. It doesn't change. In the world, sex is fluid on a spectrum, and you could slide on that spectrum. It's not fixed. It's not male or female. Your sex can change. Gender, according to God's word, is fixed, binary, masculine or feminine. Gender in the world is fluid on an unfixed spectrum. You may be like this today, like that tomorrow, like that, like that the next day. You know what I mean? It's constantly shifting for you. In God's word, sexuality is fixed between a man and a woman in marriage. Sexuality in the world, it's fluid, it's fluid. On an unfixed spectrum, it has nothing to do with marriage. It has nothing to do with your sex. It has nothing to do with your gender. Here's what I'm telling you. You can't believe both the word and the world. What does light have to do with darkness? What does good have in common with evil? Ultimately, this is a battle between the world and God's word. And you will have to decide which side you're on. If we will side with the word or if you'll side with the world. Let me read the last few verses here. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. As you read this cluster of verses, it almost feels like there's a, a, a regression here. 
I mean, from when we started in verse 18 to 32, it's like going towards an evil rebellion, which culminates in an evil state. And these last few verses, like it just kind of defines that state. This is how it looks, right? Where God's wrath is the ultimate solution. Again, to summarize, it starts with rejecting God, suppressing the truth, drowning it, and then worshiping the created, not the creator, which culminates in a corrupted and debased sexual perversion. As we're getting close to the end, let me just quickly change gears here really quickly and touch on some objections that we may have on how the Bible views sex, gender, and sexuality. This is going to get really practical, but very quickly, and we'll end with this. The first objection that people have, and you hear it all the time, is uh, times have changed and we have evolved. The Bible is kind of old. So times have changed and we have evolved. We know better today. My question would be, have times really changed? When the Old Testament forbids sexual sin and the New Testament forbids sexual sin, it's because they were doing the same things we are. (laughs) Right? Times really haven't changed. Under ancient Roman Empire, the book of Romans was written to the great city of Rome in one of the most dominant cultural, uh, cultural contributors to the, to the Roman Empire was the Greek culture, right? I don't know if you knew this, but Greek culture was very, very pro-gay, right? You can read this. You don't have to read a Christian author. You can read just secular historians. And in fact, it was believed that men were better than women, right? So the highest sex was between men. Therefore, most young boys were encouraged to lose their virginity to a man that was older. Times haven't changed. Trust me. Furthermore, when someone objects that we have evolved and times are better, well, let me just say this. Let me just throw some statistic your way. Not too much because I don't want to overwhelm you. Highest rates of domestic violence and abuse is in cohabitation. Cohabitation meaning two people living together that are not married, right? And cohabitation, by the way, is not practice for marriage. It's practice for divorce. I've heard that from a pastor. Of those who are sexually active, 50% will have an STD by the age of 25. 110 million Americans have a sexually transmitted disease. We abort one out of four children. The majority of children born to women under the age 30 are born out of wedlock without a father, which is the number one demarcation of who will have a good and a painful future. Sexual assault is the most underrated, underreported crime. One in four women reported. One in six men reported. I don't even want to get into just the the evilness of of, of the massive sex trafficking that's happening right now. We have an increase in pedophilia, which, which... with kids online for, dis- for distance learning in school, predators are absolutely viscerating our children. What happened to watching Little House on the Prairies? <laughs> and I, I never liked that show. I was like, even now, I'm like, dude, I don't want to watch. No, 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 no. But, but now it seems so attractive with all the craziness that's going on. There was Ma and there was Pa, you know, and they would go to church on Sunday. And then, and then, you know, the church was open during the week to educate the kids. And today our kids are watching Cuties on Netflix. And I'm not sure things are getting better. We've got little girls twerking in the name of entertainment. Times are not better. Trust me. I don't believe in evolution. I believe that God made everything perfect. And we've been going down ever since. We need a savior. Objection number two, really quickly. 
Because God is loving, He must be tolerant. Because God is loving, He must be tolerant. Do you know what we've done? We've taken love and tolerance and made them synonyms. But they're not. They're the opposite. They're antonyms. The Bible refers, rarely refers to tolerance. On the few occasions that it does, ironically, it's God rebuking His people for tolerating sexual sin. How ironic. (laughs) Revelation 2.20 says this, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. A pastor said, and I quote, Today Jezebel is a bishop in some denominations. She's a professor at some seminaries. And I end quote. Let me just say this as well. The Bible says you're wrong and you need to change. Tolerance says you're not. You're perfectly fine the way you are. You can't be a Christian without repentance, turning away from your sin, right? And tolerance is the neutralizer of repentance. The truth is this, God loves you so much that He will take you as you are, but He loves you too much to leave you as you are. It's not just a cliche saying, that is the reality. Here's the point, love does something for someone that tolerance cannot, and it changes them so that the best version of them emerges. Now let me just say this, we all agree that some intolerance is good, and it is, is it okay to smoke in hospitals? Is it? Smokers find that very intolerant. Like, how dare you? I want to smoke. Is it okay for convicted sex offenders to be kindergarten teachers? Would you be okay with that, moms? Would you? No, we don't tolerate that. So do you believe in intolerance? The reality is that we just don't like it when it applies to us. That's why there's so much pressure today. Unless I celebrate you and support you, I'm intolerant. Well, if you're really pushing for that, you really want my support that much, maybe you should change your convictions. Maybe you're wrong, right? That would make me think. Anyways, number three, really quickly. Next objection. Jesus was silent, silent on homosexuality. The reality is Jesus didn't say anything about nuclear warheads either. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean or anything. I'm, I'm, and arguments from silence are by definition a fallacy. They prove absolutely nothing. But here's what Jesus does say. From the beginning, he goes back to what? Before sin entered the world and everything went wrong. God made them what? Male and female. And a man shall leave his father and mother. Wow. That's male and female too. Hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Jesus said we're male and female and marriage is for one man and one woman. Additionally, He did talk about it in Luke 17, the town of Sodom and Gomorrah. He mentioned it in Luke 15. Sodom was a great, was a city where God sent some angels and the men all came out young and old and wanted to sexually assault these angels, right? And since that time, sodomy has been in reference to the things that they, they wanted to do to these angels, right? And then some commentators come along and say, no, 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 no. It was the sin of hospitality. That was their sin. Like, what? Well, that might have been one of the sins, but that wasn't the big one, right? That was, that was, I think that's very, very clear. There's a guy named Robert Gagnon. He teaches at the seminary in Pittsburgh. It's a very, very liberal school. 
He went through all the biblical texts, almost 500 pages, and as an academic scholar in a liberal, liberal school. And he came to this conclusion. Nope. It is impossible to arrive at a conclusion from the Bible that is acceptable in the sight of God for two men to live together to. Listen, friends, you can have the world or you can have the word, but you can't have both. Robert Gannon continues and says that in the hundreds of years leading up to Jesus and after Jesus, hundreds of years, right? There was no debate among the scholars in Judaism about these matters. It was not even a debate about homosexuality. And I'm ending with this number four. Sex is a physical thing. It's not a spiritual issue. That's what people say. No, it's a spiritual thing. It's not just a physical one. As I was getting ready for this sermon, I was, I was listening to a bunch of sermons on this topic. And I heard an increasing, an interesting thought that I want to share with you. Not my thought, but I think it just hits the nail on the head. The early Christians referred to the nation of Rome as Babylon. I don't know if you knew that. It was code word, a code word, right? Babylon was an ancient nation of the Old Testament of the days of Daniel. Babylon took over God's people and enslaved them. And one of the first things that they did is they took Daniel and they castrated him. They gave him a gender reassignment surgery. The spirit of Babylon lives on. Babylon was an ancient nation that sought to change Daniel's sex, gender, and sexuality. But behind Babylon is a demonic spirit that is at work in every nation and every age. This is why long after the Babylonian Empire, which is mentioned 227 times in the Bible, Revelation 14.8 says that at the end of history, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Church, there's a powerful demonic spirit at work in the world. You see it, I see it. The name of that spirit is Babylon. Sure, name it how you want. And that spirit is trying to get everyone to be sexually confused and addicted and then self-destructing themselves. Like a pastor said, and I quote, Babylon the Great has seduced and enticed everyone to join the religion of sex by sacrificing your sex, your gender, and your sexuality on the altar of pleasure. And I end quote. The spirit of Babylon has confused and affected all of us at different stages, at different degrees. One more verse. In conclusion, Revelation 14.10 says this, they too will drink the wine of God's fury or wrath, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels of the Lamb. Church, ultimately, we need to know this. This language of the cup of God's wrath being poured out full strength is what the Bible was speaking of when the Lord Jesus was headed to the cross. Just listen to what I'm saying and be encouraged by this. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was in agony, when he was sweating drops of blood, right? 
he was praying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup, you know, let this cup, just move this cup away from me. Take this cup away from me. That's the cup of God's wrath. Now think of it this way. Think of every single human being who has ever existed on planet Earth. And that they have a cup in the presence of God. Hey, hey, you have a cup in the presence of God. I have a cup in the presence of God. My name is on it. Your name is on it. And every time you say something you're not supposed to. Every time you allow a sexual thought to enter your mind and you ponder on it. Every time, every sinful deed or motive, every sin that offends a holy and an infinitely perfect God, more wrath is poured into that cup with your name on it. One of two things will happen. Either you will receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your God and your Savior and your Lord. And when he went to the cross, he drank full strength the cup of your wrath. That's what Jesus was praying. Father, if it be your will, take this cup away from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Either Jesus drank the cup of wrath for you on the cross. Or, sadly, you will drink that cup for yourself in a place called hell. It's a choice that everyone must make. And it is your choice. No coercion. No one forces anyone. It is your choice. My choice. Church, we're all villains. No one's a victim here. We are all villains. It is not that people accidentally end up in hell. No, it's that we reject God Almighty and we suppress, suppress the truth of God. And the most important decision that we will ever make is deciding that Jesus Christ is Lord. And deciding that, hey Lord, I'm going to give you my sin. I'm going to give you my past. I'm going to repent of my sin best I know how. And therefore, receive forgiveness of sin. God is loving and then receive a new identity, a new and beautiful life where God is our master and father and an eternity of bliss with Christ at the center of it. Jesus is infinitely loving. But because he's infinitely loving, he's got to have wrath. He's got to protect his flock. He's got to protect us. Wouldn't you if you have a son or a daughter? If a thief comes to my house and he's not there to get to get prayer over, you know what I mean? He's there to do some other stuff. Well, he's going to experience my wrath as best as I can protect my kids. That's just normal, logical. Same with God. But I want us to see in this thing that, that, that in this message that God is loving. That Jesus took our wrath. I mean, God's wrath in our place. He drank our cup. And my cup, trust me, it was full. It was full. You just stand with me. I know I really went long and I apologize for that, but let me just pray really quickly over us. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.